Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey Amarillo is sponsored by Wick Realty. Wick is invested in seeing Amarillo flourish, economically and socially, for all groups of people. And they just helped me sell my home. If you're buying a home, selling a home, building a home, looking for investment property, if you're a first-time homeowner, talk to Katie Wick or one of her outstanding agents. That's wickrealty.com, W-I-E-C-K. Hey, Amarillo is also sponsored by Dr. Eddie Sauer, who practices general dentistry at Shimon Dental Group. Eddie has been my dentist for at least 25 years, and he's my kid's dentist too. He's an expert in Invisalign, using that technology to improve his patient's smiles and the positioning of their teeth. In fact, Eddie does it so well, he now travels all over the country and even internationally to teach other dentists how to use this technology. To learn more, visit shimendental.com. That's S-H-E-M-E-N. Today's guest is Reverend Nell Newton. Now, I've talked to a couple of pastors since starting this podcast, and I wanted to talk to Nell for a couple of reasons. Number one, she's relatively new to the area. She's originally from Detroit, but spent the past few decades in Austin before coming to Amarillo in 2017. Second, she pastors the local Amarillo Unitarian Universalist Fellowship. Now, in a spiritually conservative community, very few people know much at all about this liberal religious movement. Now, I'm a little bit of a religion and theology nerd, so it was a lot of fun to sit down with Nell and talk about her career, about her late entry into pastoring, uh, about a little theological history, and what she specifically loves about Amarillo. So here's Nell Newton. Reverend Nell Newton, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Jason. It's good to be with you. Well, I I appreciate your time. I would like to talk uh, about your church. I'd like to talk about Amarillo because you're a relative newcomer to the city. But Mm -hmm. before we get there, um, I want to hear a little bit of your story. So before you arrive in Amarillo, walk me through your timeline. I was born in Detroit. Okay. That's fairly far away from here. Yeah. And I still have family in Michigan. I grew up there until I was a young teenager. And then we spent my high school years in Minnesota. I went to college in Ohio for a couple of years, but my mom moved down to Texas to teach at uh, what was then North Texas State, and I became a Texas citizen that way. And I eventually transferred down to UT Austin uh, about 1981, and then uh, for 37 years, I had no reason to really leave, so I just dug into Austin. And that's where I met my husband, we got married, raised our family, but all good things change. And so in 2017, we moved up here to Amarillo. Let's talk first about that transition from Minnesota, Michigan to (laughs) Texas. I mean, you're still in the central part of the United States, but those are pretty different worlds. Yeah, Minnesota is a different end of I-35. Still connected, though, by a single road all the way way to Dallas. Uh, All the way down to the border. Further than that, yeah. Yeah, I had come to Texas when I was a teenager for part of a national church gathering for teenagers, and and I thought it was one of the most um, harsh and godforsaken places I had ever ever encountered, and I was really quite worried when my mother said we were moving here, 
<laughs> now, is that in relation to the landscape or the people? Oh, the landscape. Okay. I mean, there, 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 there were grasses that were twelve feet high. There, there, there were poisonous spiders and snakes. Um, things you just don't have in the Upper Midwest, quite like you do down here. Um, it seems, uh, and and even after living here all these years, it, you can really easily get the sense that uh, nature's just trying to kill you. <laughs> and that's that's often what it feels like around here. Was there anything surprising to you? I mean, coming in with that immediate first impression or maybe that oh. prejudice about the landscape or whatever. Yeah. What did you find once you got settled in and actually moved? Well, I found that my name could be a two-syllable word. Um, Nail? Yes. <laughs> and then I found how lovely and gracious and polite and funny Texans are. Texas colloquialisms are just some of the most beautiful and colorful and funny things um, I ever get to hear. And um, I love the state so much. I even married a Texan, and um, and he makes me laugh. Hmm. And that's a good thing. When when you moved, you know you were you were younger, but yeah. then you stayed here as an adult. Was that because of your husband, or were there other decisions about deciding to stay? Oh, and it wasn't because of my husband, because I graduated from UT right as the oil bust hit in the mid-80s, right. and uh, there were no jobs, and it would have made a whole lot of sense to leave, go someplace where I could find a job, put my new degree to work. But instead, I stayed in Austin uh, because I'd found a martial arts teacher. Really? <laughs> martial arts kept you in, in Martial Texas? arts kept me in Austin, and uh, as lovely as it has been to move here to Amarillo, the the things I miss the most are my martial arts school and um, H-E-B. Well, yeah, that's that's true. <laughs> what what kinds of martial arts were you studying? It's a Korean style. It's very obscure. Nobody really knows about it because there's only a few schools here. And uh, I'm one of the instructors. And so... What, what has oh. made that so much of a, a passion for you? It's my spiritual practice. By that, I mean... It's what I do not just for physical work and exercise, which it gives me that, but it's also a way for me to really um, get past all of the chatter in my head. It's a meditation time. It's a time for me to marvel at the beauty of this universe. Um, and, and the stuff that I do, I can do this, the, 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 the kicking and punching, only my kicks are really pretty foolish looking. Um, but I do the stuff that looks more like Tai Chi. It's very slow. And um, so I can go very slow. And when you go slow, you have a lot more time to just be present and not get distracted by things. What's the name of it? The whole system is called Tukang Musul. And in addition to the fighting, kicking, punching, weapons, the soft style is called Ipsun. And the sun is the Korean word that's analogous to the Japanese word for Zen, so it's meditation. Ipsun is moving meditation. Okay. So I do moving meditation and uh, qigong, which is analogous to the Chinese words for qigong, which is internal energy training. Right. So I do qigong and ipsun. What, uh, how did you first get into that? Did you, did you go into it looking for that sort of spiritual practice or was it more an exercise kind of thing and then you found some more depth to it? Yeah, I think, um, well, my mom started, we started it back when I was in high school and started with, you know, concerns about um, self-defense, mm -hmm. of course. Um, and 
then just the beauty of it, and it's, you know, I, I used to be a dancer, and so it, it was something where I learned to um, turn my body into an expressive art form. But then the more you do something, the more the something starts to, to change you. So it's really more of a spiritual practice now. Um, and like I say, my kicks, my punches, they're, they're really feeble and foolish looking. So, so I, I mean, <laughs> if, if something were to happen, should I stand behind you and let you, you know, handle sure, everything? Or? Sure, because if something should happen, um, we'll all wind up having tea afterwards. Okay, well, okay. There, are, there are cupcakes on the table, so mm-hmm. um, it doesn't seem like the sort of environment where yeah. I might need your protection. Probably not. You mentioned the spiritual practice aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to talk about your spiritual journey. How long have you been a pastor? I've only been a pastor since, um, let's see, I was ordained in 2015 by the congregation in San Marcos, Texas. In our tradition, the congregations hold the authority to uh, ordain Okay. Ministers, so it's not some. It's not a si- governing body no. or larger. No, um, the local congregation holds that authority. So the congregation in San Marcos, Texas, ordained me. Then I had trouble finding a job because it's a long process. So for two years, I worked uh, at a nonprofit, an environmental nonprofit in Central Texas, um, working with people to plant and care for trees, teach okay. people about trees, and that's very close to um, my call to environmental justice, okay. my understanding of the holy. And so it was great work. I loved doing that work, but I knew I needed to be a pastoral, a, a parish minister. So I went into search, and eventually I found these folks, and they found me. So you had several years of adulthood, though, before <laughs> getting into that, <laughs> oh, you know, yeah. into the ministry. So what did you yeah, do before what then? Happened? I heard, and it's often called the call. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you hear a call to ministry, I heard a call to ministry when I was in high school. Really? Yeah. Um, and I was raised Unitarian Universalist, which makes me a little odd, even in our denomination. Only about 12% of people who participate in our congregations are actually raised in this denomination. A lot are coming from mm-hmm. no religious practice at all right. or from... Deconstructed religious practices, I guess. Yeah, a lot of them come, you know, they were raised in a different tradition, and at some point they chose to depart and go exploring, and a lot of them became heretics. Heretic means a person who chooses. And um, some of them, the, the faith of their childhood was no longer fitting them as they were adults, and some of them come here. So... Being raised Unitarian Universalist was a little unusual, even by our own standards. And as I became a young adult, um, I think I finished my undergraduate and uh, told my mom, I think I want to go to seminary. And my mother said, oh, oh, no, 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 no. You don't, you don't want to do that. <laughs> she said, you'll never get paid very well. You'll always have to move. If there's ever a problem, the, the board will blame you. <laughs> And she knew exactly what she was talking about because she'd been a good church lady and uh, she'd seen all that happen. And, you know, I'm her only daughter and she loves me so much. She Mm -hmm. didn't want to see me suffer like that. So she said no. Uh, One of my failings is that I'm very obedient. So when Mama said no, I didn't do it. And I did everything else. I worked in every other kind of field I could. And finally, by my mid-40s, 
I really heard the call to ministry, late 40s, definitely. And um, I, I went to a presentation by one of our seminaries, and one of the teaching ministers walked in, and she said, we are called to be with our people. And it hit me like a bell, and I burst into tears. I said, yep, I am called to be with my people. So I sat my mama down, hmm. and I said, Mama, I'm going to seminary. And she was very still, and she looked concerned. And I said, look, Mama, I'm a fifth-degree black belt. There is nothing these people can't scare me with. I mean, really, I've just seen it all. I think it'll be okay. And now, lo, these many years later, my mother is one of my greatest supporters. She has loved me forward into all of this, and um, she's really delighted that I'm now a minister. Is your story common at all among Unitarian Universalist ministers? I mean, mm -hmm. coming into it maybe in midlife or making a career yeah. shift like you did. Yeah, it's pretty common. Um, there are some people who do come straight out of undergraduate, um, who go straight from college to seminary, are younger people, and that, you know, some of them have brilliant long-term careers as ministers, and some of them get really burned out right. early on because it's it's tough work. Um, so those of us who come to it as a second or even third career, um, we have a better sense of ourselves. We kind of we're not so easily scared off. <laughs> right. It, I mean, it seems like a, yeah. a pretty good model. You mm -hmm. know, young people might have a lot of energy. They might have innovation mm -hmm. and ideas. Absolutely. But you can't just learn wisdom in a seminary. And and when you've got, you know, four decades of, of life experience, that's something as a pastor where you can offer yeah. a little bit greater depth, I guess, than yeah. you know, maybe a, a young, smart 26-year-old, 27-year-old. Yeah, but also a lot of times our younger people are the ones who just open my eyes. I am so dazzled by them because they have language and compassion and, and insight. I mean... I learned so much from our younger, my younger classmates because they are not quite so busy making apologies for the past. Mm -hmm. They're all about the right now. And that's been lovely. Uh, I've, I've grown so much from being around my younger colleagues. Yeah. Let's talk about your faith tradition mm -hmm. in general. Before we talk about you know, the specific fellowship here mm -hmm. in Amarillo, um, Amarillo is a very conservative town, religiously, for sure. You know, there, there are a lot of larger denominations. You've got Southern Baptists and Methodists, Church of Christ. Compare those sort of mainline, conservative, traditional denominations to your church, or to your tradition, I guess. Okay. I'm thinking, where do we go historically? Let me give you the history of this denomination in this country. Okay. We're all familiar with the Puritans who came over to seek uh, a place where they could practice their religion, and they wanted to purify their Christianity. They wanted to get the government out of their Christianity because they did not trust the government to do Christianity very well. They said they wanted religious freedom. A lot of times that meant that they wanted to... Um, basically start their own theocracy without anybody else. But God love Roger Williams. <laughs> Anyhow, um, the Puritans, as they evolved, they, they had a real strong non-hierarchical approach. 
approach to things. So they are the ones who started putting power at the congregation level rather than in a governing body um, like you saw with the churches that they were rejecting. So they became known as congregationalists, and we still have the congregational. Right, especially uh, up in the Northeast, yeah. that part of the U.S. And the congregationalists had what they called congregational polity. The decisions were made at the local level, but they agreed to be in covenant with one another. So they were associated, the individual congregations expected to be held accountable by one another. So along about in the late 18th century, you know, late, late 1700s, early 1800s, some of them began looking at the Christian scriptures more critically. There were different translations coming out. There was more biblical scholarship starting to happen. And this process of examining the scriptures became much more possible. And some of them began examining scripture and began to reject the notion of the exclusive divinity of Jesus. They began to say, what's this trinity? And you know, we can go back to history and say, you know, the Trinity came out of the Council of Nicaea. The Nicene Creed came out of it, where it was decided among early Christians to make Jesus into a divine figure, separate, so a supernatural being, and that's how they got the Trinity. We can talk about that another time. But so these Christians in mostly New England start looking at Scripture and saying, we're not seeing how this is supported by the teachings of Jesus. So they decided to say, you know, Jesus was human, and that perhaps that's more even powerful than making Jesus divine. And um, that caused a few schisms, as you might imagine. And they were given the epithet of Unitarian as opposed to Trinitarian. So they took that epithet and they said, by golly, we will be. We'll own it. We'll own it. They lived into it. So the Unitarian in Unitarian Universalist just means one God. Uh, Jesus is mortal. Jesus was human. And if a mortal human could have such profound teachings, what's to stop us from trying to live into them? So that's where the Unitarian comes from. Now, simultaneously, there were some people scratching around through the scriptures, also up in New England. They came out of, or rather, the, the Congregationalists and the Unitarians split, and some of them got the church building, some of them got the communion silver. All of them were Christian, and you'll see that still all through New England. Meanwhile, there were less affluent, less educated frequently, rural Baptists who started scratching through the scriptures, and some of them came up with the idea, the interpretation that they weren't seeing anything in Jesus' teaching about eternal damnation. And they started saying, you know, why would God create such beauty only to damn? And so they came up with the inter their interpretation of Scripture was that there is universal salvation for all souls, that sin is of the flesh, and when the flesh is gone, the sin is gone. And um, so they got smacked with the label of, oh, universalists. Mm -hmm. And they said, we'll take it. We'll live into it. So universalists believed in the essential goodness of humans and that God so loved the world 
that all souls are reunited upon death. As Which is not a new idea. I mean, there have been exactly. theologians going back to origin that exactly. have been talking about that. There's, both of these impulses have been happening over and over throughout Christianity. They just happen to both show up in New England around the same time. So, mind you, these are two different denominations, two different sort of upstarts. The Unitarians tended to be more affluent, more educated, more urban. Harvard was developed, or was launched to train up proper ministers, many of them then Unitarian. Uh, the Universalists were more rural, more self-educated, and um, so there was a little, little frisson between them that way. But in 1961, the year I was born, the two denominations chose to consolidate. And so we wound up with this long and clunky name, Unitarian Universalist, but it speaks very explicitly about our theologies, where we came from. So at this point, though, while we came out of this Christian tradition, we came out of it in a very liberal way, and liberal as opposed to literal. Okay. So um, it is about interpretation. It is about reading and interpreting. It's about being informed by personal human experience as well. A lot is upon the individual to do this work. So that's the tradition I was raised in. And by the time I showed up, there was a lot of understanding that this was a place where you could ask questions more profound than any answers, that these congregations were a place where you did not, and we have no creed, you have no statement of faith, you are just expected to show up and start trying to live it and do the work. It's hard work, too, because people are just so peopley. So here we are, by the, t by the mid 20th century, there are two small denominations, you know, merging in the hopes of not being completely subsumed by the larger culture. And uh, humanism had definitely been welcomed into our circle, as, as well as theism, non-theism, atheism, agnosticism, and as the circle got drawn larger, uh, we have religious naturalists, people who find the holy expressed in nature. Uh, we tend not to be uh, too sure about the supernatural, because how can we know that? We've got plenty to hear, to look at right now with the natural world. A scattering of people throughout U.S. history who um, were Unitarians and or Universalists. John Adams, John Quincy Adams... People like to talk about Thomas Jefferson. He was Unitarian in spirit, but he never actually joined. So Florence Nightingale, hmm. Clara Barton, lovely people, lovely people. Um, we have been a progressive religion for a long time, unapologetically right, progressive. Right. I want to ask a question that I know mm -hmm. a lot of listeners will be thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with within the the very conservative evangelical world, mm -hmm. you know, they hear you say, "Well, uh, we we started asking questions about the divinity of Jesus, or mm -hmm. we started asking questions about, you know, the reality of eternal damnation." You know, we're a church that doesn't have a creed. They're thinking, "Okay, you don't belong to us." You know, <laughs> why why are you even a church anyway? If nobody believes anything. Why are you still gathering together on Sundays to sing and to have sermons and 
to study. A bunch of atheists who yeah, go to church. What, why don't, why don't yeah. you just stay home and, and be you know godless in your own way? And so I, I know there's mm-hmm. that disconnect in, mm-hmm. in how people understand it. So. Yeah, it, it is hard to understand. And it makes it easier when you get back to the idea of covenant and get back to the idea that it is incumbent upon the individual to do the work. We cannot expect our minister or anybody else to hand down, this is what you need to believe. You have to go out and figure it out for yourself. And as the pastor, I'm supposed to provide them with, I sometimes think of myself as sort of like the tour guide, pointing out important things along the way. <laughs> and we are supposed to draw upon the the wisdom of prophetic people throughout all history and time. And the 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 teachings of the prophets. Um, so that includes wisdom from the Buddha, wisdom from our Hebrew scriptures and the Christian scriptures. We are supposed to pay attention to these things. Um, so we have to do that work, and we do it in a congregation with a covenant. The people of this congregation have written a covenant of right relations. So we are more of a tradition of orthopraxy rather than orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is right belief. Correct. You're right. You believe the right things, you say the right words, you're right. Orthopraxy is about being in right relationship, actual doing of something. So it's very hard to stay in right relationship with people. But this congregation and many of our congregations write out very explicit covenants of how they will be together of how they will seek good intention in one another, how if they have a disagreement or concern, they will bring it directly to the other person. And so what binds us together, too, is you know, mission, vision, and the way we live out our faith is through our covenant. And for a lot of people who maybe have, you know, abandoned or stepped away from their childhood faith. Mm-hmm. You know, they've, they've disentangled from some of those beliefs. But what happens when you do that is you you miss the community. You, you miss, miss that. community and accountability. Right. Because, I mean, um, it's very easy to sit at home on a Sunday morning and think your own thoughts and know that your thoughts are just perfect and why should I ever have to change or challenge my thoughts? Why should I replace myself in accountability or relationship to another person who might think differently than me? That takes courage. It takes courage to walk in here. And a lot of people will think, well, we're all liberal together, so that's okay. But often they are then kind of startled to realize that that um, nice lady who always brings the cookies is a raw-boned existentialist. Um, or that the, the 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 gentleman who's in charge of the finances is actually dazzled by the beauty of DNA and God expressed through um, the changing seasons. So, heck, I'm getting ready to preach it pretty soon. We need not all think alike to love alike. It's the accountability of community, and that's true in in the Christian tradition. That's why they formed the 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 Christ the early gatherings of Christians, and and even in the Buddhist Sangha, your practice is not complete until you figure out how to do it with other people. But that that upends a lot of expectations that people have, you know, with the idea that, well, if if you stop going to church, you know, there's there's some evil force that's causing that, or you're doing it because you want to get away with something, or you feel Mm. guilty. The idea that if you abandon your childhood faith or God, 
or if you like widen it to include a lot of different things, that somehow you're going to fall away from you know this tight set of moral teachings. And yet you have people here who have taken all these different steps and yet are still gathering because of that pursuit of right relationships, because of that deeper morality, that desire to do good, even if it's apart from a traditional view of God or Jesus or church or any of those things. Oh, is, yeah. is, that, is that something that your members struggle with, with, with those misconceptions in this community? Well, this congregation, I think, is like very many other congregations that were founded around the same time. It was recognized, and it was the Unitarians at that time, it was before the consolidation, that um, there were a lot of people who were growing beyond faith of their families, and they, but they needed community. They needed resources to do their work. And it was a specific time in, in our denomination. It was called the fellowship movement. And one man said, we need to get get resources out to people who want to have a congregation but don't have enough people, uh, can't afford a mem- um, um, to pay a minister, don't might not even have a building. So the American Unitarian Association went out and, I mean, this fellow practically Johnny Appleseeded all of these little fellowships around the country and here in Texas. And some of them took off and flourished and some of them eh, fizzled. But this one here started growing. And um, a lot of the people who founded it, you know, it was for the adults, of course, but also many of them were families. And they said, we need a place for our children to have uh, a good grounding in, in the teachings and understand scripture, not in a supernatural way, but also in a lived way. And, um, you know, people get tired of having their kids come home saying, you know, Mama, you know, the kids at the playground told me I'm going to hell. What does that mean? And so this is a place for to raise up children who um, are loved and held and that their questions are cherished rather than corrected, that we make a place where children grow deep roots and, and strong wings. Let's talk about Amarillo. You know, as someone who just arrived here in 2017, what did you know about the city when you first began to connect with with this congregation? My mother-in-law lived here for many years. In fact, she taught out at River Road High School for 20 years. We'd come up here to visit her sometimes. Um, My husband's from a little town outside of, uh, between Lubbock and Littlefield. He's from a little tiny town of Anton, Texas. I like to joke that he's, you know, he speaks the local patois. He he understands the language. He translates for me. So I I already knew what the place looked like. And I know Texans. Uh, I love them. I love the the beauty of the place. So, um, but when I was contemplating, you know, like first I got to find out what's the congregation like. What's yeah. you know, a person who who visited here and and got to meet. The folks up here, she said, listen, I know that it's brown and flat and smells like cow, but the people are wonderful. <laughs> and she's right. It's actually not that flat. And it's always, it's not all that brown, that astonishing blue. Um, I am grateful for the trees here because I am a real tree person. 
Um, I'd like to see us plant more trees Mm -hmm. and maybe cut down some of the dead trees. The things that I see looking at Amarillo, there is a looseness in some things, but there is also a very... um, I'm I'm looking at some things that I realize they're happening that way because that's the way they've always been done. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm still waiting for successive waves of diversity to really change some of the ways that things have always been done here. But that's a that's a long story. It is a long story, but but tell me briefly why you think that's important. Oh. That kind of diversity. Maybe not just I mean your yeah. your your congregation is is very diverse, I know, but I mean the city less so. At least diverse in ideas and, yeah. and beliefs. Yeah. We're very diverse in, in, in beliefs. We, we have a ways to go in truly being welcoming to, to certain difference, and we're working on that. I identify as a multiracial person, and um, so I'm seeing that there's still a lot of division along race lines in this community. And given the history of this place, I, I completely understand it, but it's kind of still a little... <sighs> I, I try not to grow impatient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you've, you've only been here yeah. a, year, a year, 18 months. Exactly. What? Uh, <laughs> tell, tell me how, how you would like... I mean, being, being at this church you know, for mm-hmm. you know, just a few months, tell me what you would like to see happen here. How, how would you like to see it change or evolve, you know, in, in the coming years? This congregation? This congregation. <laughs> Paint a picture of it for me. I mean, how many, right. how many people, um, you know, will attend on a weekend? Well, right now we're about 150, 160 members. We are already taxing the space of this building. It's We've, not a huge building. No, we don't. We need more classrooms. We could use a bigger kitchen. We can't all fit in the sanctuary at one time. So we have two two services. Um I would love to see us have a larger physical space, but only when we have just gotten absolutely so root-bound that we can barely, you know, have a potluck without uh, somebody getting hurt. Um, I want I want our growth to be intentional. What I want for this place is that these people love one another forward with great courage and great support, that they care for one another so well that other people will walk in and say, there's a place for me here, that um, this place will love me for who I am and who I am becoming, that this is a place where I can raise up my children, that my whole family is welcome here, that we don't have to hide our truth to be welcome here. And... My dream for this place is that they will love one another so well that they will accomplish great things and change this world towards love. Make this place the heaven that it already can be. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this episode is sponsored by Wick Realty and Dr. Eddie Sauer of Shimon Dental Group. Their sponsorship comes courtesy of my Patreon page, patreon.com slash heyamarillo where individual listeners like you can support the show on a monthly basis. This helps me keep making the Hammerella podcast. Now, one of the support tiers is for $100 a month. That's a sponsorship tier, and it gets you a monthly ad like you heard earlier for WIC and for Dr. Sauer. It's an economical, ongoing way for businesses like these to stay in front of my listeners and support a local creative product. 
To learn more, go to patreon.com slash heyamorello. That's Patreon with an E. Okay, I'm back with Reverend Nell Newton. Nell, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. <laughs> I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. Your job as my guest is to answer those questions. So uh, go into whatever degree of detail you want to. It's not a place for sermons or anything, so keep it fairly short. But uh, let's get to the first one. And and we covered a little bit of this already, but tell me one specific thing that surprised you about Amarillo once you moved in here, once you got settled. The refugee population. Okay. The commitment of people in this area to welcome in refugees blows me away. Much of which that, that welcoming is happening through the local churches. Yes. Yeah. Um, it speaks of a grace and a generosity that truly matches the grandeur of this area. What local restaurant has become your favorite? Mm, 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 mm. Uh, of course, we like Saigon and Bangkok, Tokyo and uh, Delvin's. Yeah. And we just had an amazing catfish at um, Fat Cats. Okay. But uh, I'm lactose intolerant, so pizza for me is um, really, really important because uh, you can take a bad pizza and put a lot of cheese on it, and people think, hey, it's a good pizza. Well, if you can't put cheese on it, then you really find out what's good. 575 pizza. Great. Even without the cheese? Even without the cheese. Okay. Yeah. What does this area have too much of? Dead trees. All right. And loose trash. Or dead trees. Sometimes those two things go together. Yeah. You've got a grocery bag up in one of those dead trees. Why do you think Amarillo has so many dead trees? Does, is that something that strikes you like compared to Austin or other places that you've been that there's more here than there ought to be? Well, it's, you know, it goes back to the actual environment. Trees are not part of this natural environment. Mm -hmm. But uh, when humans move into an environment, they typically plant trees because trees make us feel better in general. That's a whole sermon. But the reality is it's a harsh area to be a tree, and trees need to be watered. And a lot of the trees that were planted 60, some years ago didn't do so great, or you know they did okay for 50 years, and then they died. And so I really still haven't figured out why people are leaving these dead trees around. Um, I mean, yeah, it costs money to take down a dead tree, but you, know, you can't really plant your new tree until you get the dead tree out of there. Right. So. What does this area not have enough of? Recycling. I agree with that. Yeah. I mentioned it to our mayor, and she said, well, you know, when people are ready to pay for it. And I said, I'm ready to pay for it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I know other cities of a similar size, and um, they've managed to do recycling really well with a, you know, a public-private partnership. Um, I think we could do it. That's a big Psychological change, I, I guess, moving from a place like oh Austin, where just as naturally you oh you separate goodness. your trash, you put it in the right bins, and <sighs> here you just yeah. feel like you want to talk. It's 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 at the theological level. I feel like I am committing a sin when I throw away paper or plastic or glass or metal. It just it feels like I am sinning against my God by being wasteful, by being, by being a poor steward of our resources and our environment. And so it's, it, yeah, I, I'm having these theological struggles standing over my trash bin. Yeah. And it's, it's bad. It's just bad. Sorry. I, I, I understand. Um, okay, so you have not been here a long time. Um, I often ask my guests about one of these three places. When was the last time you visited them? I don't want to assume that you've been at any of them. So of 
Cadillac Ranch, the Big Texan, or Paladuro Canyon. Which of these three iconic places have you been to? Been to Cadillac Ranch okay. and Paladuro Canyon. Um, my husband's been to Big uh, to Big Texan Steakhouse, but I haven't been yet. Um, but I'm, I'm sure I'll get there someday. Um, but when we, when we have friends in from out of town, we we do Cadillac Ranch, we do Paladuro Canyon. I've even taken my mother to Paladuro Canyon. Okay. Were those things on your radar before you moved here? Were you aware? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Even even being from outside Texas or mm-hmm. even as far away as Austin, you knew yeah. about the canyon. You knew about actually. I didn't realize just how big and amazing the canyon was until we got here. And then people were like, "Yeah, so here we are." Um, it's beautiful. It's amazing. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside this area? Well, if I'm being sassy, um, I'll say Amarillo. It's not Lubbock. But if I'm being honest. I'll say there is a terrible beauty here. It is big and astonishing. Um, Nature is so generous here. And the people are learning to match the generosity here. Mm. I like that. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite street in Amarillo? I don't think I have one yet. Um, Well, okay, when I go um, on Amarillo Boulevard, of course, I have to go visit the Prairie Dogs. That's just a given because um, I'm, I'm, I'm a fool for prairie dogs. Um, we sometimes, we, we live close enough to 6th Street that we can walk up to 6th Street and wander all around there. That's pretty good. Okay. Yeah. It's an interesting enough street. Yeah. Yeah. There's a few things there. Yeah. What's your favorite local coffee shop? Uh, I have two for two very different reasons. Um, I like Palace because they're close by, um, but I love Urbana because they're real quiet. And so if yeah. I need to visit with folks, I like to go to one of those two. Uh, I'll meet people at either Palace or Urbana. The the foolish thing is I don't drink coffee, so I measure them on their tea. Okay. And both of them do pretty darn good tea. Palace gets a lot of love on this podcast, but uh, we haven't talked much at all about Urbana. Oh, my gosh. They have wonderful things to drink there, wonderful uh, non-coffee beverages to drink there. Um, and it's just a really lovely vibe, really chill. They don't have obnoxious music. Um the chairs are pretty comfortable, comfortable enough, but it's a great place to just sit and visit with one or two people. I really like it for that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that concludes the uh, the eight straight section of the podcast. Now, mm-hmm. I like to end by asking my guests to endorse something related to this area. So what is something that you would want listeners to know about or to experience? I would like listeners to love, love, love on our city parks. I think our city parks are beautiful. I love Thompson Park. I love Sam Houston Park. I love Memorial Park. Um, John Stitt, and once the trees grow up, I'll love it even more. We've been saying that since the 70s, probably. (laughs) It takes a lot of doing to grow some trees here. But um, everybody I've met from the parks department are great. I just, I think I treasure the parks here, and I would just encourage people to just love on our parks. Now, Newton, thank you so much for being on the Hey Amarillo podcast. I appreciate it. My pleasure. It's good to visit with you, Jason. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Nell for the conversation and for sharing the chocolate cupcakes she had in her office. You can learn more about her church at uuamarillo.org. Thanks also to Eddie Sauer, DDS, and Wick Realty for sponsoring the show. If you're interested in supporting this podcast as an individual, as a sponsor, as a business, visit patreon.com slash Executive producers of Hey Amarillo include Patrick Burns, 
Wes Reeves, Jennifer Callahan, Ryan Pennington, Katie Linger, Corey Burns, Daniel Davis, and Wilson Lemieux. This episode is originally publishing on Christmas Eve. So if you're listening on the day it drops, Merry Christmas, everyone. If you're listening sometime later, I hope you had a Merry Christmas. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.